2024 is the year of elections. More than a billion people are expected to head to the polls this year in what has become one of the most consequential years for politics and elections in decades. This week on Put Simply, we shine the spotlight on Indonesia, the world's third largest democracy and the largest Muslim-majority country. My name is Erdem Koch. And I'm Ozan Ibrahim. Welcome to Put Simply. Ozan, good to be back with you here on Put Simply, our third episode. How are you, my friend? I'm doing really well, thank you very much, and greetings from Singapore. Um, I've got to say, I really enjoyed last week's episode where we looked at the state of the Chinese economy. I mean, how good was Julian last week? Oh, brilliant. Just brilliant. He just did such a great job of unpacking the complexities and, and giving his unique insights um, behind what we see in the headlines on, on all of the troubles that China's uh, economy is facing. It's a great episode. If you haven't already, go and listen to it on your favourite podcast platform. And indeed, Julian did a good job really distilling a, a you know very complicated country and a very complicated uh, set of circumstances. Uh, and, you know, in the spirit of talking about things that were done correctly and or done right, uh, in the spirit of putting things simply, Matt Klink, a US political consultant and commentator the previous week, looked at Iowa and what meant what the Iowa caucuses meant for the larger uh, presidential race and, and who will secure the Republican nomination. Uh, interesting things have developed since then. And I think, you know, we'll be speaking to Matt and, and other US experts as this election year rolls on. But speaking of election year, the US is not the only one going to the polls. Uh, the poll that is up next is Indonesia, uh, which is our focus today. Absolutely, my friend. Um, and Indonesia is a super interesting country. Um, you've got over 200 million uh, citizens that are eligible to vote for this year's presidential elections that are going to be held in uh, on Valentine's Day, as well as their legislative elections, which uh, which is basically their parliament elections. Um, this is the fifth presidential election since Indonesia's transition into democracy, and it's been filled with twists, turns, and plenty of drama. The campaign so far has all the makings of, of a bit of a soap opera or a bad episode of Dynasty, I think, um, and it's somewhat exposed some of the fault lines in Indonesia's fragile democracy, particularly when it comes to dynastic politics um, and allegations of corruption. The extremely popular two-time president, Jokowi, is, as we all know, term limited, which means that uh, according to the Indonesian constitution, he can't run again. However, his 36-year-old son and mayor of Surakarta, Gibran Raka Buming Raka, has managed to get an exemption from the constitutional court in October last year, despite not meeting the constitutional rule on the minimum age rule for candidates, which I believe stands at 40. So Gibran is not only running for vice president, but in a move that's been viewed by many analysts aimed at ensuring his father's continued grip on political control, he's running besides the presidential candidate, Prabowo Subianto. The interesting thing here is that Prabowo Subianto, the hard man of Indonesian politics, former general and one son-in-law of military ruler Suharto, is the very same person that President Jokowi has beaten twice already for the presidency. To add a further level of drama, Babowo and Jokowi's son are running against the largest legislative party, the Indonesian Democracy Party of Struggle, PDIP, the very party to which Jokowi himself belongs to. Well, I'm confused <laughs> and I'm sure I'm not alone. So let's put it simply. Let's look at the main issues, the candidates, the drama, 
and also talk about what the outcome means for for Indonesia, uh, for the region, and indeed the world. The stat that really stands out for me in Indonesia is that of the 205 million eligible voters, more than half of them are under 40. Uh, and that Gen Z and, and millennials want to see an end to, to the dynastic politics and corruption and, and really have that commitment to free speech, the environment and cost of living pressures. I mean, all that has to mean something in terms of influence in the outcome, doesn't it? It certainly does, my friend. And in the context that elections are taken very, very seriously in Indonesia, there is a significant amount of enthusiasm throughout the country, including its 40,000 islands. On average, over 80% of eligible Indonesians vote compared to 66% of the citizens of the United States who voted in the historic turnout election of 2020. So who will be voting on Valentine's Day? Why will they be voting? And most importantly, who will they be voting for? Well, let's put that question to our guest this week, Abdul Malik Anwar Dean. He's the managing director of CT Group in Singapore, which is a global intelligence research and campaign firm. Malik has spent much of his professional life focused on Indonesia. Before his current role, he worked across professional services sector, advising businesses as well as holding senior positions within the government of Singapore. He'll help us put simply what's happening in Indonesia. Malik, welcome to Put Simply. Could you tell us a bit about yourself and what you do? Thank you. Uh, I work for Citigroup. I'm the managing partner uh, for Citigroup in Southeast Asia. We're a global consultancy that combines uh, research, intelligence, campaigns, and advisory uh, services. Uh, Prior to my appointment as managing director, uh, I was a partner in a leading law firm in Singapore. And one of my kind of achievements for my uh, for my time as a as a uh, as a managing part uh, partner in a law firm, was being the first non-lawyer in Singapore to be awarded an equity partnership uh, in a law firm. I was I also held senior positions in the energy and trade sectors uh, for the Singapore New Zealand governments, and I also chair the strategic advisory board for the International Fraud Group, which is a, a global network of highly skilled uh, international lawyers uh, who specialize in tracing, freezing, seizing and recovering stolen assets all around the world. Well, let's dive straight in, Malik, into Indonesia. I'm going to ask you to start by introducing the country for us a little bit in the spirit of putting things simply. Tell us a little bit about Indonesia and then tell us about the the economic and the political and social backdrop in the country that's leading up to the polls on February 14. I think Indonesia is increasingly uh, an important economic uh, giant in Southeast Asia and in the world. Uh, It is the leading uh, economic uh, power in Southeast Asia, which is now the fourth largest uh, block of trading block uh, in the world. Uh, Indonesia is also, I think, in the next four years, will become the fifth largest uh, economy uh, in the world. And I think they've come a long way as well as a country. As recent as 20 years ago, uh, a major English newspaper uh, based in London uh, called it 200 million people in an economy that is in a financial mess, uh, uh, an economy that is uh, it's, it's a big blob of nothing, which was the word uh, used. I think you fast forward to today, uh, for the last nine years, uh, it has had relative stability. It is a major 
contributor to a lot of deals that happen uh, in Southeast Asia, especially where Singapore, for example, uh, is one of the largest investors in Indonesia. Now, there's also been a democratic transition uh, since 1998, uh, where voting has become a celebrated way of, uh, of, of, of Indonesian culture. And on 14th February 2024, Indonesia is set to hold its sixth uh, round of legislative elections uh, since President Suharto uh, stepped down in 1998. Now, this is a milestone because they've managed to keep democracy going uh, since 1998. And legislative elections are also being held at administrative levels uh, all across the country uh, at the same time. It's also a very large country, almost 13,000 islands. Uh, and if you take that into, into perspective, uh, an election is of this size is seen as an administrative exercise that is, is, is going to be held over a, a period of time. Uh, eligible voters, about 205 million, I think, registered voters, according to the General Election uh, Commission. But What's really unique about this is that almost 106 million voters, or around 53% of the eligible voters, are people below the age of 40. Uh, also, a large majority of people do not have a high school diploma and earn less than 200 uh, US dollars a month. And I'm building this up because I think it's important to understand uh, how social media, how uh, some of the, 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 the aspirations of this 53% uh, of the, the vote uh, will play a very big part uh, in the Indonesian uh, elections. Also, it's also important that uh, the voting age is 17. So anybody over the age of 17 is eligible to vote as long as you are not a member of the military or the police. You've painted a great picture for us, Malik, and set it up really nicely. And we're going to break it all down shortly. But put simply, how important is the outcome of this election for not only Indonesia, but also the region and the world? I think the Indonesia, I'm taking an ASEAN-focused answer first. Uh, ASEAN is a block of about 680 million uh, people uh, with what we would call some tiger economies uh, in the space as well. Now, a strong Indonesia will see a strong ASEAN because of the size of its domestic economy, but also the kind of influence it has on the politics of, of ASEAN. ASEAN is made up of some slightly smaller countries uh, in the region, and uh, Indonesia is often seen as the leading power, the leading voice in, in ASEAN. The political backdrop as well, if there is any kind of threat of violence or ethnic violence or racial violence uh, post-election, that will see a destabilization uh, in Southeast Asian countries uh, as well, including Singapore. And so I think it is also in ASEAN's uh, interest to ensure that there's a free uh, and peaceful uh, elections uh, in the space. Now, I think the other thing that that, that Asian countries will be generally looking at is the risk of uh, cybersecurity uh, as well as, as how much you know threat will come from overseas powers and whether that will affect uh, the outcome uh, of uh, the elections. I think countries in Asia will also be looking at how 
what I would call the Gen Z voters, uh, what they will play uh, and how they will play a role uh, in the, the Indonesian uh, elections. Uh, you know, and like many other countries, Indonesia is also facing uh, cost of living uh, issues. And that I think will probably be a link to job creation, opportunities creation, and, and hope uh, as well. And these three kind of factors uh, will be closely watched by the other countries that uh, will go to the ballot box uh, this year. It's interesting, just a, a fun fact that 4 billion uh, people out of 8 billion people in the world uh, will go into, into a, some form of elections this year. And I think being an early election in February 14, a lot of countries will be watching the kind of voting habits uh, of the what I call the Gen Z or the millennial uh, vote. Let's drill down a little bit more uh, on the election itself. Um, you've mentioned that over 200 million people are going to the polls on on Valentine's Day, uh, that Indonesians uh, take their elections and their, their civic duty very, very seriously. Can you talk us through a little bit around how, how this actually works? Because I understand that Indonesia has over 40,000 islands and you know what type of system do they use? How do they coordinate it? Because it sounds like one hell of a, a logistical nightmare, if you ask me. It is. Just to add on to the 200 voters, you still have got 1.8 million overseas voters from 120 uh, jurisdictions around the world. So you've got a male uh, system of voting for 1.8 million Indonesians who are outside Indonesia. Uh, you're absolutely right. You know, it's a massive undertaking due to the country's size, population, geography as well. Uh, getting to voting centres may take days, weather patterns, floods uh, as well. Uh, so on February 14th, Indonesia will do these things. They will elect a president, a vice president, and also there are 20,000 representatives to national, provincial, district parliaments uh, from a pool of about, uh, I think, around a quarter of a million candidates. Uh, the election utilizes a direct presidential election system, uh, which allows the Indonesian public to choose the highest political office holders. Uh, in the Suharto days, it was a party-like uh, hybrid model where uh, the biggest party in the legislative uh, would then elect uh, or, or nominate uh, the president. So this has been in place for the last uh, five election uh, cycles. If no presidential tickets wins the majority of votes, which means they cross that 50% line, the top two finishers will participate in a runoff election uh, to be held on 26th of June, uh, 2024. The country, of course, uh, upholds the principles of uh, one man, one vote, but there are still some parts of uh, the archipelago that still use a traditional communal voting systems, according to villages. And I think this time round, uh, there will be also extra efforts to ensure uh, fair and transparent elections. But I also think the security forces of Indonesia will will, will attempt and, and are in the process of trying to ensure that post-election violence is kept to a minimal uh, as well. Uh, I think in the last couple of elections, there were uh, little uh, hotspots of, of trouble after uh, the elections. But I think this time around, uh, there will be an extra effort by the security forces to ensure that uh, the elections are fair that the election that post-election violence is kept to the minimal as well. But what's important to know is that it's a system where you have to cross the 50% mark 
And if you do not cross the 50% mark, then the first two candidates, uh, finishing candidates, will go into a runoff that will take us into uh, June 26. So who's actually running for the office of president, Malik? What, what's, what's the differences between the candidates and how are they faring in the polls? There are three main teams uh, running for the presidential elections. Uh, one thing, you will find that their vision statements are all very similar. Uh, they all call for a fair and progressive and sustainable Indonesia. Uh, it's usually just a play of words if you look at their, their different uh, vision statements. In the first camp, you've got uh, Prabowo, the defense minister, uh, who lost the last two elections to Jokowi, President Jokowi, uh, very closely as well. Uh, he was a uh, Kompasus, which is a special forces general, uh, married, used to be married to one of Suharto's daughters. Uh, so an ex-military man uh, who held the position of defense minister and is now being aided by uh, Jokowi's, President Jokowi's son, Gibran, uh, who is a mayor in Solo. Uh, and Pabrobo, just, just to give you a background on Probobo, Pabro is also well known to have an explosive temper and has tendencies to be off script. Uh, so if you look at some of his comments about Ukraine and the recent Shangri-La dialogue in Singapore, you'll realize that uh, it is uh, indirect opposite of what uh, the Indonesian government stand on, on Ukraine is. So he has a tendency to be off script. I think it's cost him you know, the elections that he contested with uh, recently. However, this election, uh, he has been rebranded as a, as a patriot, uh, a fun-loving, uh, grandfatherly figure, but one with a strong nationalist uh, message. So his campaign strategy has been built around security, and defense and being a strong leader. His use of social media as well has been what I call uh, excellent. Uh, he, he, he combats any kind of criticism uh, about him through social media channels. Uh, so for example, uh, there have been rumors circulating about his health uh, on whether he had any kind of health issues, whether he had a stroke and he combats that by releasing videos of himself dancing at rock concerts, dancing at uh, campaigns. Uh, and if you look up his, his Instagram account or his TikTok account, it's just him dancing. And he's kind of created a whole cult uh, of, of dancing with that. And I think that kind of addresses that whole uh, rumor spreading around that he he's not fit enough or he's 72 years old and he won't be able to see out uh, two terms uh, as, as, as president. The next camp is uh, Anis and his vice president, Muhaimin. Uh, Anis is a 54-year-old former university chancellor, former education minister, and a very effective governor of Jakarta. Uh, he comes from a family of uh, Muslim political activists. activists. Uh, he was educated in America. And while governor of Jakarta, he provided school meals for the poor and, and was also very quick in responding to the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, and is well-versed in, in foreign affairs. Uh, he, he kind of fashions himself after Suharto to a certain extent. If you look at his campaign videos and all that, he's got the Sonko on, the dark suits and the red tie, uh, and he's trying to build a... a, a the, if, you, if, you, if you're campaigning uh, and you're looking for the candidate that looks most presidential, I think Anis comes across uh, to the masses as someone who, who carries himself 
uh, in a very presidential manner. Uh, and I think his track record in, during COVID as well uh, put him in a very strong ground, especially in voters in Java and, and in the Jakarta uh, region. Uh, in the third camp, there is Ganjar and his vice president, presidential candidate, Mahfoud. This candidacy is supported by Megawati, uh, who is the daughter of Indonesian founding partner, Sukarno. Ganja had a very successful two-time term as governor of central Java. Uh, he's kind of positioned himself as a, as a man of the people. And it's also important to note that by Indonesian standards, he does not come from any political dynasty. So he doesn't have a family background in politics or, or in business. Most polls at the moment place the Prabowo camp uh, in the lead and Ganja and Anis kind of switching between second and third. So right now, some uh, polls put uh, Ganja at about 24% and they put uh, uh, Anis at about 21% and Prabowo about 43%. Uh, what is consistent though is that the polls are all pointing to Prabowo being the lead between 43 to 48%, uh, and Ganja and Anis kind of switching positions depending on which poll uh, you look at. I think an important point here, gentlemen, is that Indonesian polls to have, tend to have very small sample sizes, uh, can also be very politically motivated, uh, and some of these polls don't cover the different parts of the islands as well. So if you look at most Indonesian polls, they, they, they survey about a thousand people. And of course, if you go to places like Java, you'll get certain results that favor certain candidates. But having said that, I think uh, the, 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 the general feeling is that uh, Prabowo is in the lead. Now, the key question is that can Prabowo achieve the 50% of the vote uh, in order to avoid a runoff situation uh, against the, the uh, number two candidate? And it is really in his interest to avoid that purely because a ganjar Anis coalition for the runoff will suddenly negate the kind of advantage he has uh, at the moment. So uh, I think that it is it, he is in the lead and the question is whether he can achieve the 50% uh, to avoid a runoff. Malik, there's been significant criticism of the economic spending during President Jokowi's time in office and that much of what he has built has burdened state-owned construction companies with dangerous levels of debt. What are the candidates' position on infrastructure spending, particularly in the context of the, the planned relocation of the capital? What type of solutions have they presented to the Indonesian public? I think President Jokowi has presided over a period of large economic spending on infrastructure. Uh, here is, 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 is a fact. He has built more airports, ports, and toll roads and all the former presidents of Indonesia put together. So while it may be true that this has saddled uh, state-owned and construction companies with debt, uh, he, he's also celebrated uh, by the business community and the general population for this large infrastructure bill. Uh, so there's a lot of support by the business community who are, of course, beneficiaries of contracts uh, and the people who feel that, you know, connectivity between the 13,000 uh, islands is... Uh, something that uh, will, will help pull Indonesia together uh, for the future. And of course, that high-speed rail between uh, Jakarta and Bandung, the MRT, uh, has garnered a lot of positive feedback from, from Indonesians. From the candidates' uh, perspective, 
I think it's very clear that that the exchange that Gibran for vice president has meant that Prabowo has come out openly and said that he will carry out uh, the plans uh, for Nusantara, which is a new capital city in Kalimantan, and, and we'll see that through. The only candidate who has come out and said openly that, you know, uh, the plan for the smart city, you know, will, will uh, increase massive deforestation, uh, threaten the habitat of endangered species, uproot homes of indigenous communities, uh, has been Addis. Both the other two leading candidates, Prabowo and Ganja, have come out, openly come out and said uh, that this is a major project. Uh, this will will relieve the stress of, of, of Jakarta, uh, which is really a valley, you know, it's it's overbuilt, polluted, uh, and that, you know, uh, moving the capital city is something that will, will, will help the country uh, in the long run. And also, you know, they're talking about building Lusantara as a sustainable forest city uh, that puts environment at the heart of its development. And they have an ambitious plan of, of being carbon neutral by, by 2045. So the reality is, I think if you see a Prabowo government or a Ganja government, the Lusantara, the, the city in Kalimantan, will be built. I think if Anis comes through somehow, you will see a lot of changes to what the new plans for the, the new city will look like. It's fair to say there's been quite a bit of drama, hasn't there, Malik, in the lead up to these elections, uh, particularly the selection of the candidates, the interventions of the con- Constitutional Court. Uh, what's happening? So the drama started with the intervention of the Constitutional Court that resulted in Gibran being nominated, nominated as Prabowo's running mate. This threw the whole political ecosystem up into the air as President Jokowi has always been supported by Megawati and Indonesia's largest party, PDIP, which she heads. What this has done is this has kind of split the vote in central Java that will normally go to Ganja. So the split vote has cost Ganja uh, a couple of percentage points uh, and also you know, brought some of the what I call 35-year-old male voters in central Java to the Prabowo camp. Uh, this has enraged Megawati and, and privately, for example, when PDIP celebrated its anniversary two weeks ago, Jokowi was not invited uh, to the PDIP uh, event. President Jokowi has also been accused of undoing a lot of his good work over the nine, last nine years uh, around this action. There's also an added complexity to this. So he went to the Constitutional Court, and the Constitutional Court is seen as a check on executive powers in Indonesia. The Constitutional Judge that ruled in favor of the President to reduce the voting age is also the President's brother-in-law. So there has been uh, a lot of accusations that this smells like nepotism. Uh, This will take Indonesia back uh, to the days uh, where, where, where high levels of corruption and the courts were not free. The other thing that's very, very interesting also is that I think this whole campaign is being played out in social media. Uh, I was quite shocked to hear that uh, Indonesia has the second largest TikTok subscribers in the world after the US. And as a result of that, uh, whoever wins the social media campaign, uh, you know, whether it's TikTok, whether it's Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, you know, will win 
the hearts and minds and will influence uh, the outcome of the of the election. The other controversy that's kind of brewing around is, you know, people are asking the question, why is President Jokowi doing this? Uh, he's done really well, really popular. Why is he not being free and independent uh, at the end of his term? And there are some speculation that this could be because he wants to keep the, his influence post-election, which is, uh, and he's looked at SBY and SBY's family, the previous president, uh, and seen how they've been sidelined. And I think he wants to keep his relevance in Indonesia uh, post-election. Uh, but I think the biggest controversy still has been the kind of installation of Gibran as uh, as vice president. Uh, I think uh, that has kind of raised a lot of questions in, in, in the eyes of Indonesian society, uh, where it's very patriarchal. So you, you you spend your time building your career up before you, you, you go into politics or you get into a position. And, and a lot of people were shocked that he went to a constitutional court and the ruling judge uh, is his brother-in-law. And I think people are still reeling uh, from that. Uh, whether that will affect the Prabopo camp uh, remains to be seen, but the polling numbers look like you know he's actually swung some of uh, of uh, the PDIPs or Megawatis and uh, Ganja's stronghold uh, in Central Java with this move. I just want to pick up on something that uh, you mentioned earlier in in terms of the the significant part of the voting population uh, being below forty years of age, and we understand that also um, significantly more than half of the electors um, are actually women. There's two questions here. What role are these segments likely to play in the outcome of the election? And how have you seen the different candidates appealing to each of these segments? And also, uh, you mentioned the, the the dancing on Instagram and TikTok and the large influence TikTok in particular has in Indonesia. Can you go a little bit more deeper into what type of role the social media platforms um, and the campaigning on social media has played in the elections and how, in your opinion, uh, is it going to impact the outcome? Let's start with the woman question first. I think if you look at the data, the data is pointing to me that, that actually slightly more than half of the voters are, are women. As a result, you see that all the parties have met the mandated, mandated nationwide quota of 30% of women, women who are seeking election. Uh, the current speaker is a woman. There are a number of law lawmakers have risen from 20% uh, in 2019 from less than 10% before 1999. Because there are more women voters uh, than male voters, I think issues around education, cost of living, and the whole idea of hope, hope that my children will be able to do better in, in a modern Indonesia will be key determining factors uh, when they choose the next president. As a result of that, uh, you'll see that Prabowo, Kanjar, Anis, uh, job creation is very a very big part of, of their, their, their campaign mandate, talking about 15 million jobs over the last five years. The numbers may, may vary for a couple of million, but everybody has made that uh, kind of top of the, the agenda. One thing I think these three candidates should be wise to do is do not discount uh, the role Indonesian women may have in kind of swinging the votes, uh, voting habits of their husbands, boyfriends, sons, uh, because 
like in a lot of other Asian societies, while women may not be at the forefront of a family unit, uh, they, they call the shots when it comes to the management of money uh, and play a very you know, influential role uh, in the decisions the family takes economically as well. So cost of living issues, because most of the women would handle the household expenses, the food costs uh, will also be something that uh, I think the three candidates need to, to do better at. The other thing I think that uh, it's probably not heard of, uh, there's been accusations being flung around, but I think the issues of nepotism, corruption will rank very high among voters uh, under the age of 40 and women voters. I think the, the candidate that creates an illusion of hope uh, in dealing with corruption, the illusion of hope in dealing with employment, uh, and the illusion of hope for a better future uh, will do well with a kind of segment of voters who are under 40 uh, and women uh, uh, voters as well. Now, the use of social media has been something new, I think, in Indonesia, uh, where all three candidates have been scrambling to ensure that their messaging uh, on social media will reach as many people uh, as possible. Uh, it is possible to, to actually say now that perhaps as much as 70% uh, of the voting public, not only the young voters, uh, the voting uh, general voters in particular, probably get all their information from, from social media. As a result of that, you will notice if you check out Prabovo, you check out Ganja, you check out Anis's Instagram, TikTok accounts, short, very tight, very punchy videos uh, are, are being currently produced. Uh, key statements like the famous Trump, make America great again. You'll find that a lot of these guys are coming with very short, punchy uh, campaign slogans so that there is brand recall as well. And in one particular candidate, I think Prabobo has to be singled out as having expertly used either advice, uh, under advice, or expertly used advisors to kind of craft his uh, his his social media campaign. Uh, I'll give you a, a an example. Uh, in one of the presidential debates, he was criticized by Anis uh, for his record as defense minister, and when the the host of the program asked Anis, how what upon a hundred, what would you rate Prabobo's term as uh, as president? He said eleven upon a hundred. And the video then went back, the cameras went back to 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 Prabobo, and it looked like he was about to tear. And he looked left, looked right, like as if you know someone had stabbed him in the heart by making such an accusation. Next day turned the video around, uh, very sad, dramatic music uh, in the background, him looking really upset, hearing uh, about that, that question. But that, that was only part it showed. And that video went viral almost immediately. And like a lot of Asian countries, you've got the suddenly the sympathy towards Prabowo, a 72-year-old man who served his country all his life, being criticized by a candidate for his uh, service to the country. Uh, I think in short videos like that, punchy videos like that, uh, has has kind of swung uh, the 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 electorate uh, to to Prabobo uh, as well, and the dancing. I think that got rid of a lot of the accusations that we flung whether he was fit enough uh, to be president. The other videos where he comes up very nicely is his 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 journeys to meeting common people, uh, 
uh, his the way he takes messages and, and makes them short, punchy, and visual with, with music uh, has also worked well. The other thing, of course, is that he's also the only candidate that has kind of used other influences to endorse him. And in, in, in the Western idea of endorse, endorsements through influences, you get you know, fashion uh, endorses, this endorses. He has actually gone to business people uh, who have a very big social media presence and got them to run his videos, got them to endorse his videos, got them talking about, about him as well. And I think that this whole idea of using celebrities, using rock bands, uh, using business influences to kind of carry his message forward uh, has seen a big change in, in how Indonesian politics is. Uh, has played out. Uh, I think this is something that's new. That's something that will be looked at as a case study when uh, when all this is over, uh, to look at how much social media actually swung uh, the election campaign as well. I guess uh, President Biden's uh, campaign advisors are looking very closely to see whether he should be appearing in a, a few TikTok videos, no doubt. <laughs> so come February 14, Malik, what is going to be top of mind for voters, do you think, as they cast their ballots? Uh, what are the differences, I guess, of the candidates that will stand out for people? I think the first thing that Indonesians will think about is continuity. Indonesia had a rough ride after uh, President Suharto sat down. Bloodshed, religious tensions, racial tensions, uh, terrorism, uh, different forms of uh, Islamic terrorist groups coming out of Indonesia, uh, security threats. I think they want to avoid all that. So I think the voter who comes out, will the, the idea of which candidate will Will, will provide me with the opportunities or the growth that I've seen over the last nine years will be the candidate that, that, that takes it. I also think you cannot rule out things like job creation, education, poverty alleviation, and jobs uh, from the equation as well. The similarity between the Indonesian elections and other global elections uh, will continue to be about cost of living, it will continue to be bread and butter issues. It will continue to be about uh, jobs, especially in the post-COVID uh, uh, environment. And I think corruption as well, how you deal with corruption. My concern is that, well, a lot of these candidates have put up numbers uh, about how many jobs they're gonna create over the next five years. No one has actually kind of explained uh, how they're going to achieve this. I think also the last two weeks of the election campaign uh, before February 14 is going to be critical because I think there's this mass of voters who will decide in the next, the last two weeks of election on who they put the cross around the, the, the ballot box. Uh, and whoever swings that over the last two weeks uh, will be important. The other factor which I don't see much of the candidates influencing is the 1.7 to 1.8 million overseas voters as well, uh, how they swing or which or, or how they vote, I think will, will have an influence, a small influence, but an influence on 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 uh, on, uh, on election day. The critical thing for for if I was Prabowo would be how would I get past the post on, on February 14th? Uh, because uh, the alternative, and this is I'm just speculating here, the alternative 
could possibly a, a coalition between the other two candidates to face him in a runoff. And then he runs a danger of kind of resetting all the, the support that he has got uh, over the last couple of months uh, campaigning uh, in Indonesia. So uh, I think cost of living, I think jobs, I think hope, and I kind of round this off with hope. It's it's very much who, who will make sure that my kids, I make less than 200 US dollars a month. I don't have, a, I have a middle school education. I don't have a high school education. I want my kids to do better. And how do I do that? And the candidate who can offer me that platform without uh, revolution uh, would be the candidate I work for. I, I think that would be the psyche of the Indonesian people. Malik, we can't uh, let you go without asking <laughs> a few questions and putting you on the spot, as we do on uh, Put Simply. What is your prediction for the outcome of the election? I I'm going to make two predictions for you, so two for the price of one. I think that Prabowo and Gibran will cross the 50% mark on February 14th. That will then be that there will be no runoff on to the June 26th. However, uh, if there is a runoff and Anis and Gibran go into a collision, uh, I suspect that might possibly do the trick uh, to, to nick uh, a very closely called election. You've heard it here on uh, Put Simply, there will be no runoff. So we're holding you to that, Abdul Malik. <laughs> yeah, that's why I gave you two. Like a good consultant, I gave you two, uh, two options here. Exactly. <laughs> well, Malik, we asked you to put something incredibly complicated simply for us and you've done exactly that thank you so much for taking the time and joining the podcast thank you for having me and that's been this week's episode of put simply i've been your host erdem koch and i'm ozan ibrahim be sure to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcasts platform and follow oroku group on linkedin for all the up-to-date information until next time thanks for listening <laughs>